Hey, let's take our Bibles. Okay, now as you're turning to Colossians 3, let me do a little bit of a survey with you. This survey is American workers, okay, taken and talking about. Let me see what you get for answers. Here was the first question that was asked. How many American workers are satisfied with their jobs? Do you think it's 10, 25, 50, 75, or 90 percent? 25? 10 percent? Okay. Let me give you a stat before then. That 39% say the only reason they're doing their current job is it meets the bills. Okay? And what percentage did you think say, I like my job? Hmm. Right now, it's 49%. Okay? That's a shame. (laughs) So many many don't care for it. Let's take a little bit further. Okay? How many different jobs, employers, do you think the average worker has in America in their lifetime post-school? Do they have three different jobs that they places they work for? Five, seven, ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty. Seven? Seven, somebody said? No. Ten? No. Five. No. Twenty. No. You're getting closer. Okay, okay. The average the average thirteen to fifteen different jobs in their career, places that they work. Okay, let, let's do something a little bit. Okay, what is the average number of full-time workers in America? What is the average number of hours they work per week? Okay. Okay. This is hourly and salary people. How many hours do the average American work per week? 55 hours a week? No. Okay. Several of you are saying it. Okay, the average is 47. Okay, now, let's take it a step further. When we talk about that, by the way, if you put everybody together, it's 34. And of those who are working salaried, 25% work 60 or plus hours. So the average number, productive hours, okay, <laughs> productive hours per day in the average work, American work, work field, per eight-hour days, what is the average number of productive work-oriented that people are doing? Under four, five, six, seven, all eight hours. It is definitely not eight. A number of you are saying seven. It's not seven. It's not six. It's not five. 3.75 of productive time. Well, I understand that because in the average workday, I sleep about six hours a day in my office. So that... (laughs) Now, taking that... 51% 51% of, the, of these people respond and say, I do other things other than work when I'm at work. I do other personal things other than work. What do you think are some of the personal things that they do that, carry, that takes up the a bulk of the workout, work day? Online? Shopping? What's that? Media? Yeah, okay. Social media? Work uh, telephones. <laughs> I wasn't surveyed, so <laughs> it's, it's not there. Okay, here are the stats that people say this is what their average that they do different things than work when they're supposed to be working. Okay, surf news articles. <laughs> That's if you can find them on the internet. Okay, check your social media. Talk to others. You know, that are there about non-work stuff, personal phone calls, as well texting that takes place, getting snacks, preparing coffee, and getting your coffee, 
The average of those 51%, 12 minutes a day average looking for another job. Okay. Okay, so we're, we're talking this morning. The reason I bring this all up is because this morning we're in a text that talks about work, talks about your job. And jobs are important to us, okay, in, in our society. They're very, they're, one third of our normal work, work week day is spent working if we're working an eight hour job, eight hour job a, a day. Um, we spend years, some of us, spend a lot of years in college or whatever preparing for our job in Votech, you may, you know, some of us spent years, okay, in order to get prepared for it. When introduced, we often say, you know, what's your name? What do you do? And it's such a part of us. In fact, when we go places and have to fill out forms, they usually ask, what's your work number? And so we know that work is a major part of our society. It's a major part of our thinking. It's a major part of your parenting. You're telling the kids you got to look out for, you know, what a career and, and stuff like that. You're directing them that way. But you're not the only one concerned about it. God is too. That's what we're going to see in this text. God talks a lot about your work and how you handle your work. And that doesn't surprise me. We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, God said we're supposed to be producing. He made us this way. That we are not only social people, we are supposed to be productive people. He said at the very beginning to Adam, he said, dress the garden, keep the garden. And this was even before the fall. Don't be mistaken. Work is not a result of sin. Work and productivity was there before sin entered into the world. Sin just complicated the workplace. It just made it difficult. In the Ten Commandments, God assumes you're working. Where he said in the Ten Commandments, six days shall you work, but on the seventh day. It's an assumption that people who are following him are working people, producing people, busy people. We go through scriptures, and there are multiple passages that talk about not being lazy, working, giving your best effort. You can go all the way back to Proverbs, where he talks about the hand of the diligent. And these are general truths. They're making, they'll be made rich in all labor. There is profit. But if it's, you're given a talk... It's pure, uh, pure poverty. He talks about the hand of the diligent shall arise, shall prosper, but the slothful, they're going to be under other people's control. He talks about whatsoever your hand do. He says, do it heartily. He tells us to go to the ant. He used that as an illustration that in the, in the creation that he made, he made his creatures to be working, uh, working uh, creatures, okay, in that sense. He warns us in Thessalonians when he wrote, he said, we are to study, to be quiet, to do our own business, to work with our own hands. And when he wrote the second epistle to the Thessalonians, he even went so far, he says, when we were with you, this we commanded that if any would not work, neither should they eat. And then he went on and talked about that. So work is a, is a part of God's design for people. God's design is not that people become lazy, that they let others carry the load and do all their work for them. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be charitable to those with needs, those with difficulties, those with illness or sickness or handicaps or loss of a spouse or parent. We know that all those we're supposed to be generous to, we're supposed to help them out. And we even use our own jobs, he tells us, not to steal, but work, your, work with your hands so you can give to the needy. And so that idea of work is very important. It's in our culture, it's in the Word of God. And then as we think about it, there's another aspect of work that is very, very important. I know that it's designed, as we put all these verses up, that God says your job is His way of providing for your needs. We understand that. 
And not only for your needs, but then you to also support ministry needs that he puts you in. And so we understand that. But there is another aspect of work that I think is lost in, in most people's minds in 2020. And especially something we need to make sure the next generation understands. But before they understand it, we've got to get it down pat. That when we go to the New Testament and we look at it, our work is our stage to present Christ. What I mean by that is this. You go to the epistle of Titus and he's talking, the older men, the older ladies, teach the younger ones this principle. Teach them that he says that servants to be obedient to their own masters, to please their masters in all things, not, not you know, mouthing off, not being disrespectful, not stealing, that's purloining, but showing all good fidelity. Watch the development of the next few verse, phrases in that, in that section. That they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things, for the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. What's he doing in this text? He is saying to us that our jobs are very, very important because the way we work enhances the gospel or it hinders the gospel. And a very important principle. He is tying your job to your witness to how you affect the people around you in the sense of drawing them to Christ or turning them off to Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we talk about and people would say, well, you know, are, are you in a full-time ministry? Do you know what this verse is saying? Every one of us is in a full-time ministry. Mine is full-time vocational, but you're in a full-time ministry as well. If you're working, you, God says this is your ministry. This is, can I take it a step further? What God is saying about your job, my job, your job, that that's your mission field. We get so concerned, and we ought to be concerned about missions overseas. You should be about concern, concerned about missions if you're working at Wendy's. What's your, what are you doing for Christ if you're selling cars? What are you doing for Christ if you're a school teacher? What are you doing for Christ if you're in retail business? What are you doing for Christ if you work at Hershey? That's your mission field. God says this is a really important aspect. I give you a job not only to meet your needs, but to reach other people. And the way you work, how you conduct yourselves, is very important in turning people on or off to the gospel. Tremendous, tremendous truth that is often overlooked. And so in this text, he's going to develop that idea of what do we work? How do we work? What are we to do so that we enhance the gospel, not turn people off to it? Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 3, now let me set the scene for some who may be visiting with us and haven't been up with a study so far. Before I read it, let me remind you what he has done in this book. Chapter 1, the first 20 verses or so were all about, let's magnify Christ, magnify Christ. Christ is creator. Christ is to be preeminent. He is majestic. He is, he is all in all. He is Lord. He is God. Just what we sang. That's been the bulk of the first chapter. Then what he did in the second half of that first chapter, he says, Christ should be exalted, not only because he's creator, but because he's your redeemer. Do you remember in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, 21? Go back there if you need to. Where he talks about, you and I were alienated from God. 
We were, because of our sin nature, because of our choices to sin, in our mind, in our words, in our deeds, we lied, we rebelled, we disobeyed parents. We may have used the Lord's name in vain. We lost our temper. We have put a wall between us and God. We are separated from God because of our sin. That wall needs to be removed, needs to be broken down, or we're going to end up in hell. And he makes it very clear in Colossians 1, not only is Jesus creator, but Jesus is the reconciler. He's the one who came to this earth, give his life, die, bury, and resurrect to break down that wall. That's the word reconciliation. To remove the barriers, to remove the roadblocks, to clear, make a clear path of fellowship and traveling. So we are no longer held back from heaven, but through Christ we're able to get to heaven, have fellowship with God, talk to him, pray. He alone is the reconciler. Then he went a little bit further in that same chapter and said, not only did he reconcile, but he took the handwriting that was against us. That is the record of all the spiritual laws we broke, all the Ten Commandments we broke, all the different attitudes we had that were sinful and offensive to God. He had a record of that. It says that he blotted out this legal handwriting, this legal document that contained all of our guilts, that was our spiritual record, and that was against us, he nailed it to the cross. That is, he put it up there and he wiped it out, he erased it with his, with his blood. With his blood. That's the Colossians passage that talks about it. That makes perfect sense, because remember when Jesus is on the, on the cross, he yells out, Tetelestai, do you remember what it means? Paid, it is finished, complete, paid in full. Okay, and so that's what Christ has done for us. So he's talked about that's what Christ has done. It's not our baptism. It's not the church we go to. It's not the denomination we belong to. It's a relationship with Christ that determines whether we get into heaven or not. Those of us who have responded, like these people that he's writing to in the church of Colossae, he writes to them and says, okay, what do you do with that? Well, you magnify Christ, you show Christ, you appreciate Christ, you demonstrate Christ. Not only in appreciation, but as a way of advertising Jesus Christ. And so what he's done in chapters 3 and 4, he says, here's how you live now. Because you are changed, you've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been, been converted. All those different words you may use, born again, they're all Bible terms for that same thing. That you called upon Christ, repented of your sin, he forgave you, you're on your way to heaven, now I'm going to live in a way that appreciates and advertises Christ. And he talked about how you need to do is treat other people properly. Then he talked to family members. He talked to the wives, talked to the husbands, talked to the kids, talked to the parents. Now in chapter 3, he says, by the way, here's how you act at work. Here's how you act at work. It makes perfect sense to me why he would, because we spend a lot of time at work. We interact with a whole lot of people at work. And so now he shifts and he says, okay, I want to talk about what you do for Christ when you go to work. And he's going to talk and use the term slaves and masters. In bringing it to 2020, uh, 2020, it's the idea of employers and employees by virtue of application. And he's going to say, okay, here's what I want you to do. Now we pick up and we read. 
Verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus, or you serve the Lord Christ. But he that does wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters. Give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Why does he talk to the slaves first? And again, this reminds you just what we talked about in the previous verses. He talks to the wives. That was very non-cultural. You would always talk to the husband, not the wife, in normal Roman society. He talked to the kids. That was abnormal. Usually people would talk to the parents, not the kids. There's no ancient documents written to the wives, written to the kids. Now he talks to the slaves. Who writes a letter to a slave? The slave is nobody. God does. God has words for them. Why is that? A couple possibilities, a couple reasons that are factual. One is because they were a major, major part of the society. If we have our facts right, as people understand the Roman world, the Mediterranean world, half of the people of that era in that region, they were slaves. Half of the church would be underneath somebody else's rule or authority. You're slaves. And so that makes a great bulk of the church. He's writing because so many are in this category. They would get there by a couple different possibilities. If they were conquered people... If all of a sudden Lebanon was attacked by Hershey and, and uh, Hershey took over, those of us in Lebanon, we become slaves to Hershey. That happened frequently. Okay? A chocolate war. Okay? Took over the place. Or if you were in debt, okay, your credit card company could come and all of a sudden put you in enslavement. And then you became a tenant farmer for them. You became a worker for them. Or you were, you were by birth, your parents were a slave, you're a slave. And so a lot of this population, if half of them and they have children, it's just going to propagate and continue to expand. Now, don't misunderstand. Uh, not all slaves were illiterate, uneducated, and doing just menial labor. They could have slaves in that time who were doctors, who were teachers. All of a sudden, there were slaves where all of a sudden I hire Jim and he becomes the teacher for, I don't hire, I buy him. He becomes the teacher for my kids. And then when they grow up, I sell him to somebody else. Okay, and using his teaching skills and degree. You could do that with your own doctor. You could do that with your own business manager. In fact, other cultures did the same thing. Let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Do you remember somebody who was a business manager but was a slave? Joseph in the household of... Potiphar, and then he also is going to take charge in the kingdom. And so this frequently happened, okay? But what developed in the Roman government and, and society, and this is going to play into what he says to him, is that those who had slaves came to an attitude that physical labor was beneath me. Because I have a slave, then, and I'm rich, and I'm noble, I don't have to work at all, and I can just do whatever I want as the authority. Because my slaves had no rights, legally. They had no rights whatsoever. They were property. And so what happened in that society is, even Aristotle wrote about it, they called slaves living tools that had no rights. And the boss, the employer, could do whatever they want with them. Some would take care, like you would take care of your property. Some were very brutal. 
Some were very cruel to their slaves. They didn't care. They would replace them cheaply. And so there's this, this social situation where some could be working very, very hard. Some could be sold any times. Families torn apart. Some could be killed. A slave master in the Roman world could take the life of any slave without restriction. Only after Christianity started spreading did laws come into place that made some of those differences. That started restricting some things, but not at the time this epistle is written. And so they're writing and they're talking about that. In fact, there is a conversation going between one man who bought property and his manager at the new farm. He says, get rid of all the old people. They are broken tools. And so you could get rid of people who are over, you know, whatever working age, over 60. Let's just put them in the field, they die. That was very common in that era. If a slave ran away, killed, or branded with a letter F on their forehead. So now he's sitting, he's writing and considering there's a lot of slaves in the auditorium. And there's some rich people in the auditorium. And in that church setting, the culture says slaves are nothing, rich people are everything. The rich people were putting down others. And he's going to say, okay, this, I want to get it straight. What happens in the church? What happens when you go outside of the church? And so he writes to them, and he's going to speak to them because the slaves, not only big in number, but they're important to God. This is the, this is the issue you and I have to understand. God valued women. He wrote to them. God valued kids. He wrote to them. God valued slaves. God's a maverick. God's a revolutionary. Nobody else would do this, but God did. He wrote to them because they were there in the church. They were saved. They were people he, he purchased. He redeemed. Slaves were so valuable, Christ died for them. And so he's writing to them and he says, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to give you direction because you are valuable to me. Think through that setting. Think if you were a slave, what this means to you. How this would impact you. That all of a sudden, you realize your life matters. The big debate in America, whose life matters. Here's the biblical truth. Every life matters. Every life. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. For God so loved the world. God is not willing that any should perish. God loved the slaves. Wouldn't, if you were a slave at that time, wouldn't you go, wow. This is so different. This is so unusual. So uplifting. In fact, God even talks about it. In the church setting, let's keep this in mind, he says, that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There is no difference between the male and female. There is no difference between the bond and the free. You're all of value to me. You're brothers and sisters. There shouldn't be an angst or an animosity or prejudice based on gender or skin tone or job status. There should be a common bond of unity and love within the church. And he writes about that. He challenges some of that bigotry that was so much a part of that culture. And so what he did is he writes about it. And when he wrote, this is the part that rubs people wrong in 2020, is people look and go, but he didn't eliminate it. He didn't wipe it out. Why didn't he wipe it out? Why didn't he destroy it? And we have, we have a culture now that looks back at history and they criticize anybody in history who doesn't operate on principles of 2020. And it's like, are you kidding? You have to read history in its context. Always in its context. 
What was the world like back then? And we have to understand that when they are writing, he writes to the slaves and he gives them commands. The first command is obey your master. He doesn't say rebel, protest, earn, you know, get away from your master, run away. In fact, do you remember who carries this letter back to the church of Colossae? It's a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus being returned to his master by the name of Philemon or Philemon. Okay? And he's being returned. Paul doesn't eradicate slavery. Paul doesn't destroy it or rebel against it. By the way, we're going to have to answer for that. The way that our culture is going, our Bible's going to get picked on real soon because of this issue. How are you going to respond to it when people criticize and say, you're listening to a book that promoted slavery? How are you going to respond? Whatever you say to some of those folk, they won't accept anyway. But let's have wise response. Let's be prepared. Why didn't Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say slavery is a done deal? Let's think through. Let's back up. Let's do a little bit of Stepping back and looking at the reality of history at that moment. The reality goes this way. Oh, and I needed to, I forgot I was going to add this verse. In fact, this is one of those verses that you're going to be challenged on. That he writes and he says, are you called, were you saved while you were a slave? Don't, don't let it bother you. Care not for it. But if you may be made free, use it rather. For he that is called to the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Um, let, me, let me use another translation that just might help with you a little bit. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord, born again, as a bondservant, the reality is he's been made free in Christ spiritually. And he who is... Uh, called when he is uh, a master, that person is a slave to Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the equality we have through Christ. But he never promotes get rid of slavery, rebel against it. And the reason he does that are a couple different thoughts. In the early years of Christianity, Christianity was a non-entity. It wasn't like it is today. There was, there was nobody who were Christians initially. In society, they were the vast minority. They had no influence they didn't even have the right to vote. They had no right to protest. What were the slaves supposed to do? Were they supposed to go out on work and go on strike? They would be killed. They'd be killed. They, they, well, then they would claim their rights as a Roman citizen. They had no rights. They were slaves. Understand, they would had no choice in this matter. In fact, if you go back into history, Christianity, when it first started to spread, and there was the, do you remember there was 10 different persecutions that went up into the 300s? You do remember this, yes? That persecution against Christians was tremendous, and it was from the emperors, the imperial persecutions, 10 of them in, in, in a row. And when they did, they accused Christians of such things as cannibalism. And they said Christians get together and they practice cannibalism. You know why? Because of communion. In communion, we say, this is my body, take, eat, right? And so Christians are practicing cannibalism. That must mean they're killing their babies and eating their babies. Those were the, those were the actual claims against them. One of the claims in the persecution was Christians were saying masters and slaves are equal. 
and it went countercultural. Well, we understand what he's saying. He never said, let's get rid of the culture. He said, but in our relationships, understand we have to be civil one to another. Okay? And so he's writing that to the culture at that time and re- recognizing they aren't able to influence society yet. Okay, because of their numbers, because of who they are. In fact, this whole idea, it was illegal for them to free slaves. Uh, Cultural setting. Our American forefathers are being raked over the coal because they had slaves. Okay, and we're not saying slavery was right. Okay, we're not saying that at all. We're saying, okay, do I understand why Washington, why Jefferson, why they didn't free their slaves? Because... It was illegal. The laws of those times controlled how often, when they could, and how many at a time they could free. And so they were following their law. And what was their goal? If you read their writings, their goal was to change the law. But it would be in time. And so do I think that, that slavery is bad? The answer is yes. We all know, we all decry it. Do we understand how it infected, influenced, and it became a disease in society? We understand. Do we understand why it would take time to eradicate? Yeah, we understand. Do we wish it was different? Yes. But we can't, can't change history. And so we look and say, okay, here's what we're, and here's what changed history. Christianity's primary purpose is not to change society, it's to convert people. It's the preaching of the gospel. It's not political activism, it's preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. That's why I prayed at the beginning. If we were as zealous in promoting Christ as we are a candidate, we would do much more good. It would be a much more impact. Why is that? Because if you want to have change that lasts, you change, change the people, you change the culture. Change the people, you change the culture. Because you can easily, let's, let's go, let's go feed all kinds of people, let's give them all kinds of food, and if we never change the character, the person, they're going to remain hungry. And they end up dying and going to hell. And losing their, their entire eternity. So what do we do? We say, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Because when you preach the gospel, it changes the person. And when the person is changed inside, they change outside. And that's where all of a sudden laws started changing. Slaves started getting rights. Because Christianity was abounding more and more and more and making impact influence. How is it that the gospel goes into a region like India? Let's pick on India for a second. India has poverty. What are some of those people who are steeped in that paganism? What do they do with what food they get? You do know that they worship cows at some of those places, yes? They worship rats, right? You've seen those, those images of temples built for rats? And you go, hey, wait, why are you you're suffering with food to have food? Why are you taking giving it to a rat? Okay? Because they're still steeped in paganism. But once they get broken from that by Christ's salvation, then they're able to address the social issues. 
Okay, and so it's, it's this idea. And again, we don't, we don't ignore social issues. We don't say, okay, let's not do anything to help out the people in poverty. That's what you just voted on last week. Let's send money to areas that are impoverished and they're struggling to get food. But with the food we give, we're giving the gospel so that it makes a lasting difference. So he's writing to them. And when he's writing to them, he's saying, I want you slaves not to sin. You've been freed from, from sin. Don't go back into it by the way you act. And so he's going to deal with their everyday life right now. Everyday life. Okay, what do, what do you do? Don't sin. Obey your masters. What's that mean? That obeying your masters, which again, I told you, applies to you in application to how you do with your bosses. Okay, that is the idea that at all times you listen to. You hear under. As if the doorbell rings and you run to it. Listen to your boss. Listen to them at all times. That's all of you. That's all of you. Because the you servants are both plural. That's including you. That is this idea, no matter what type of employer you have, saved or unsaved, listen to your masters, hear your masters. The same word he tells the kids, hear your parents. That, that same exact word. Listen to them. And he doesn't say, oh, only if your master is kind. Oh, only if your master pays you a whole lot more than he might pay somebody else in food or shelter or whatever. He says it's to be done in all things. Now, you and I already know that there is an exception to this. The one exception is we obey men except for when they ask us to, to sin, to disobey God. But in all things, listen to your boss. Listen to your boss. Listen to your boss unless they ask you to sin. And then he tells them, now this is, this is interesting, the wording. You may have, might have to write some things. Obey in all things according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. He's talking about being honest. You are listening to your employer, but you're also being honest towards your employer. That what you're doing, not with eye service as a men pleaser. In other words, the idea is you work whether your boss sees you or not. All of a sudden, you know how, none of you ever did this, but I remember gym class in high school. Gym class worked this way. You know, do your push-ups. Yeah, we did our push-ups as long as the, the guy in charge walked our direction. Soon as he was walking down another direction, all of a sudden the push-up went, you know, you know, just weak. People do this all the time at work. They work as long as the boss is nearby. As soon as the boss leaves, they don't, they don't work. And he says, not you who are born again. Not you who are born you, You're honest. You're being paid for eight hours of work. Therefore, oh, that was convincing. How many productive hours a day should you be doing as a born-again believer? If it's eight hours. Yeah. He's saying, be honest. You should work hard, whether you're alone or with others that are watching. Singleness of heart means without fold, without cover-up. It's that idea of, I'm having integrity. My integrity says that I am, if I'm working for you, I'm working for you. That, that's saying that I'm not hypocritical, that, that what I'm doing isn't double-dealing or isn't cheating or isn't, isn't deceptive. The Romans had a word for this. The word was without wax. Without wax is the idea of no hypocrisy, no cheating. Okay? We get the word sinceras out of it. Okay? Sinceras was the word. It, sincere. Okay, is the word that we get in English. Sinceras had this idea that, and let, let's use these illustrations. 
You are going to make one of these sculptures. You've been hired. You have the gift. You have the ability. And so your master says, you know, I'm going to employ you out to somebody else. And you're going to sculpt their child. They, they, you know, some of you may be shocked by this, but they didn't have you know, iPhones back then to take pictures. Okay. That was a whole different world back then. And so instead of taking a picture, they would make the statue. So they want a portrait of their teenager. You're working on this thing for weeks, for months, and you're, you're getting the stone just right. But being OCD the way you are, it's just not quite perfect. I want to get the nose just a little bit better. So you're going to tap on it ever so little. And when you do, the nose falls off. So now you got this statue without a nose. And you're going, months of work. Oh, what am I going to do? You could do what was very common at this time of that society as we know. You could take wax and mix some of the stone dust in it to get the color and work it all up and you could put a new nose on. It would be a wax nose. It would look right. It would be great. It would be wonderful. And they would come and they'd say, oh, you do such great work, which you do. And so they take it home, and they put their kid's statue right there, and to make it really, really, really noticeable, they, they don't have, again, I'm going to surprise some of you, they don't have spotlights at that moment. Okay. They put a huge thing of fire right next to it. And there it is. And in time, the nose starts wilting. Because it's... You would do that with pottery. You're a potter. You're doing it. And you'd, you're working on it. It's wonderful. But all of a sudden, it shows a mar, a crack. And what you would do is you would cover it with wax so that it looked like it blended in. And what they could do is they could lift up that pot, shine it towards the sun, and they could see if there's a crack where it comes through the light through the wax. And so they passed laws, even in Roman society, about not selling waxed items that were part of it they had they were called the sinceros laws that was no wax no fold and he's saying to the workers he's saying when you work you are not supposed to be working in a way that you are covering up you are being dishonest you are supposed to be honest and one of integrity while you fear the lord what's that mean about my work what's that mean about fearing god well part of it is right here in this text Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive a reward. Or, verse 25, he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. You are saying, I recognize that God is my supreme boss. I recognize that God is watching the work I do. The way I work. I am recognizing that I don't want to work in a way that offends God. I don't want to lie. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to steal. I don't want to lose my temper and yell at others. And get mad or abuse others. I don't want to offend in that sense because I'm going to answer to him one day. That's while fearing God. And so he's getting very pointed. And you and I bring this to 2020 and say, what does this look like? By the way, for the teens in this room, you've got a job. They say, really? Do I get paid? Okay. Your job right now is preparing for the future by going to school. You know, whether it's virtual, however it's being done for you, God bless you and what some of you have to put up with. But your work right now is the way you study, how you do homework, 
how you, how you put effort into that job that God has given you. And you and I are supposed to be models. We're to be a model employee in effort and attitude. We are supposed to be individuals that we don't lie about the hours we're working. We don't lie about the job, whether we completed it or not. We are, we are supposed to be individuals that when we are told, this is your working hours, we work those hours. That's what's agreed upon. We're supposed to be individuals that we're not supposed to be guilty of the surfing the internet, you know, standing around and being the biggest gossips there at the workplace, or, hey, to get my coffee ready, it really takes an hour to get it brewed. Okay, we're supposed to be the individuals that are honest and of integrity and that we are giving the same effort whether somebody's there or not. We're honest in our conversation, in our sales, and what we do. We're respectful. We're different because we're saved by Jesus Christ. There was a story that came out that this guy, and it's dating a little bit because of the phone system, but this guy is standing at a phone booth, and while he's waiting on hold, all of a sudden this teenager comes running up, and this teenager is telling his buddy, I'm going to call the drugstore, which is just down the street like five doors. And he hears this teen talking and saying, yes, I'm calling to know if you have a job opening. I would like to know, do you have a delivery boy? Oh, you do have a delivery boy. Well, is he any good? Are you going to keep him? You are. Oh, do, you, do you think there's any hope in... Oh, you hope he never quits. Okay, so you don't, you don't have any opening for me. No, no. The kid hung up the phone, and he's starting to jump around, going like this. He's all excited. The guy who's watching is thinking, well, is this some lazy dude that's all excited that he can't get a job? Well, he may do what? So he says to the kid, just like here, he says, hey, why are you so excited that you can't get a job? He says, oh, I have a job. I'm the delivery boy for the drugstore just down, that, down the street. I just want to know what they thought of my work. That's the way it should be with you. That when you're not there, they brag on you. They talk about how good you are. And so he says, not only do you obey your master, but he gives them a second implied command. You, you work as if you're serving the Lord. This would revolutionize the workplace. This would change our, this would give a platform for Christianity like nothing else in the workplace. If you served as if you're serving God. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto man. And he's talking and he's saying, whatever you do, do it. The word do it means work hard. Work hard. Work hard. Give your best effort. Actually work until you're worn out. And he says, do it heartily out of your soul as to the Lord. So when you're working, his idea is you recognize this job is from the Lord. God has me at this school at this time. This is God's plan for me. And this is coming from God. And therefore, whatever I do in school, whatever I do at work, this is actually I'm doing for the Lord. This is where he has placed me. This is what he wants. And so my job, as I do, is not just for my employer. Yeah, there's, there's benefit to that. But in all reality... I work for Jesus Christ. Now, you know, in saying it, 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 would be, it would be bold, proper for me to say, I don't work for you, I work for Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's true because... Da, da, da. It's true of you just as well. You don't work for Pennsylvania or for Hershey or for Burger King. You really work for Jesus Christ. Now, wouldn't that change the way some people go about their job? That in their attitude and in their conduct, that whatever I do right at this moment, Christ is watching. And Christ is in charge. 
And this is how I make him preeminent. That when I'm told to sweep, I sweep for Jesus Christ. When I'm told to work at this project, I'm working at that project as if I'm working for the Lord. There's a story that comes out of history about three guys who were working in a quarry. They were getting the stone because over there in the next town they were building a church. And the first guy is asked, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? He says, I'm breaking rocks. The second guy is asked, what are you doing? I'm making a living. The third guy responds and says, I'm helping to build a cathedral. Change of attitude. Change of perspective. Change of how you go to work on Monday. And Mondays are always a, you know, a tough day to go to work. Mondays you, know, you, Mondays, you work for Friday. But as a believer, you go, wait a minute. I'm supposed to put in effort on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, even hump day. I'm supposed to be working as if I'm employed by the Lord and giving my very best at school. Is it, do, do you ever, I, you know, this, this is the way I operated as an unsaved teen. Is, was, hey, I just did enough just not to be in failing and being kept behind. You know, left behind. It was just enough to get by. Well, how terrible for the Christian teen that says, I'm going to start in my teen years in seventh grade, I'm going to start this practice. I'll just do enough to get by. I'll do enough to get by. I'll do enough to get by. But when I get older, then I'll really work. After six years of that, you've got your, you've got your character set. If you're just a get-by person, you're going to work that way later on. What a shame. Christ saved you and he says, be different. Be an individual who gives your very best when you're doing a job. But I have a nothing job. My job doesn't mean anything. You know, I, I, I work at Taco Bell. All I do is put cheese on stuff. More cheese and salsa. More salsa. Do you realize whatever job God has given you, God has given you that job? He's writing to slaves that were nobodies and he says, do your best. Do your best. Do it heartily. Even as a slave... If you're at Taco Bell putting on cheese, do your best. Put on twice as much. No, whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> Give it your very best that you have. And by the way, the early Christian church wasn't like American church. The early Christian churches got this. History tells us that within about 100 years of this, they still had slavery going. Do you know which group of slaves brought the better price? Right? Some of you are whispering it. If they were, and they started doing this, we get historical accounts, that they would say, this is a Christian, and the price would go up. Why? They got a reputation as being dependable, honest, hard workers. Interesting. That all of a sudden the impact was making, that they believed this, but he tells them something else to do, gives them a third thing. The third thing is in this passage. It says, verse 24, Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. Do you realize that slaves of that day in the Roman world at the time of this book of the class, do you realize they were not allowed to have an inheritance? It was illegal. Slaves could not get an inheritance. And so as a result, you're sitting in church, and here you read Paul's letter from God, and all of a sudden it's saying, slaves, and you perk up and go, whoo, God's talking to me. And then God says, I've got an inheritance for you. Whoa. Nobody says I can have an inheritance. That's not in our, that's not in our world. We don't, but God so cares. God's giving me an inheritance. What's he saying in this text? He is saying, I will reward the hardworking believer. The believer who takes for serious, takes seriously that his job is his stage to present Christ. He says, God, 
you know, men don't recognize your hard effort. They don't even see it. They may not even be around. They may not reward you with the pay raise, with the grade, with the job uh, advancement. But God is watching you. And God is seeing you. And God will reward you. You know, we, we think about this. We, we, we notice all this. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's going to give me rewards for the souls that I witness to. God's going to give me rewards, talking about the crown of life, if I endure trials. God says he's going to give me a reward if I'm looking for Jesus Christ. This text implies that there's a reward for doing good work. Think about it. God is watching how you work when nobody else is. God is going to bring this up. If we understand right, he's going to bring this up. Bema seat conversations include, how did you work? How did you do your homework? What a difference it would make if we, if we understand Scripture and live it. That God says the way we work makes a difference to him. And it makes a difference to other people whether or not they're going to listen to you when you witness to them because they respect you or they think you're just a bum. And so he talks and challenges. There's a story that's true. Do any of you ever hear of Harry Ironsides? Any of you know him? He's a preacher, commentator from the last century, just a godly man of God. He was a preacher, a pastor of a major church in the Midwest. And he writes about when he was a youngster, he was like 12 or 13. He writes in his biography that his dad died and he decided that he needed to help his widow mother make some money. So on Saturdays and some other days, he would work and he went down to the local um, shoemaker's place, cobbler's place, and he worked for a man who was a born-again man, godly, godly man by the name of Dan McKay. And Dan McKay was one of these guys that in his shop, he had Bible verses all over. He would give out gospel tracts to people. Very honest, very gracious to his employees as well as to his customers. And uh, Ironside wrote that. He saw quite a few times people would even come back, talk about the Lord, and even pray right there to get born again. And so he worked for McKay for a period of time, and he said that his job was he would take a piece of leather that was cut to be the sole of the shoe, and they would soak it, and then his job was to keep on pounding it until it dried out and it became hard. So he would sit with this, the leather and use this little anvil. He would hold it on his lap and just pound it, pound it, pound it till he dried it out and it became the hard sole for the bottom of the shoe. And he said it was tedious work. It was hard work, and it just was... Uh, you know, one of those types of jobs. But he said he did it, he did it, and he was, in the meantime, just, you know, admiring McKay. But he said on his way to and from work, every day he had to pass another cobbler shop. In that cobbler shop, the owner was a guy who always had people around. A lot of the teens, boys would hang around the shop, not to work, but to hear this man's foul, dirty stories. And he said he came to a point that parents were telling the kids, stay away from there, stay away from there. But um, as Ironside wrote, he said, one day he just got curious. He wanted to go in. Everybody else went in. And he also noticed that this guy's shop did a whole lot more business. A lot more people would come there. And he wanted to know why, and he's inside, and he's watching that guy, what he's working. And he noticed that that guy, when he takes the piece of leather that's supposed to be the, the, for the shoe, he doesn't pound it dry. Till it's really, really hard. He would attach it to the shoe when it was still wet. And he wouldn't treat it the same way as McKay demanded Ironside pound it into the hardness and till it's totally dry. 
And so he asked the man that. He said, why is it that you don't take as much time to let it dry out? And he says, oh, then my customers have to come back and get it replaced quicker. And so Ironside wrote about it. He said, wow, I had learned something new on how Mr. McKay could increase his business by ripping off the customers by following that method. Feeling I had learned something, I related the instance to my boss and suggested that I was perhaps wasting so much of our time in drawing out the leather so carefully. Mr. McKay stopped his work, went to his desk, opened his Bible to the passage that reads, Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Harry, he said, I do not cobble shoes just for four bits or six bits that I get from my customers. I am doing this job for the glory of God. I expect to see every shoe I have ever repaired in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ, and I do not want the Lord to say to me in that day, Dan, this was a poor job. You did not do your best here. Instead, I want him to be able to say to me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Then, Mr. McKay went on to explain that just as some men are called to preach, he was called to fix shoes. And that, that only as he, and that only as he did this well would his testimony count for God. It was a lesson I have never been able to forget. Often when I have been tempted to be careless or slipshod, I have thought of dear, devoted Dan McKay, and it stirs me up to do my very best for him who died for me. What a difference. What a difference our attitude about our jobs. What a difference. Let's go a little bit. Now he talks to masters. We'll wrap it up. He says, okay, employers. Some of you, this applies to because some of you are bosses. Some of you are businesses. Some of you are supervisors. Some of you are foremen. Some of you, you have others that work underneath you. And he says, okay, chapter 4, verse 1. He writes to them and he says, masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. Well, the, what he tells them to do is you're supposed to be just and fair with your employees. What you're supposed to do is all the time, make this your regular practice. Give, give, give to your servants what is righteous. What is righteous, morally, legally right. Give to them what is even-handed, what is treating fairly, without prejudice, without, without a gender prejudice, without a, a race prejudice. You be fair to them. You be honest. And you're supposed to do this all the time. You're supposed to do all to all your employers. May I suggest something? If you are going to be just, that is, dikaion or righteous, that means you're acting like Christ. Which brings me to this thought. What it means is, okay, again, not a mandate to free the slaves. Not, not saying that you have to pay everyone the same, the same amount of money all the time. Doesn't say that. Does he, we know from Scripture, from other parables, that Christ even recognizes different people have different pay scales. What he is saying is that even though your slave deserves nothing from you Roman masters, you still treat them properly. You treat them as Christ treated you, like they're a people, like they're a valuable, like they're an individual. You be honest to them. You be gracious to them. You be respectful to them. You're the boss, therefore you can be dictatorial. Uh-uh. You are supposed to be exemplary. You're to be the type of boss that they want to work for. Type of boss who is like the Dan McKay. You're supposed to be the person that is, that is looking and saying, they're just not a piece of property. 
they're a valued individual for whom Christ died. Does it change the, the structure of society? No. But it changes the interaction between the people. It is that idea that he says to the bosses, you remember you have to give an account yourself. You're going to, and he mentions that at the end of verse, the second part of verse 1. He says that you're going to give an account. God is watching you, watching how you treat them. And you're supposed to treat them the way Christ would want them to be treated. So he's given this all this lesson. And he's challenged. And he brings us back where we started. That our jobs are a stage. A platform by which we either enhance the gospel or we detract from it. What about you? Do your co-workers, do they look and say, I would listen to that person? Do your employees, would they look and say, I would listen to him or her? Are, are you the type of person that when it comes to, if you gave out a tract, they would think this is worth reading because that person, that person, they live what they believe. They, they, are, they are the type of person that if I had a real problem, I'd go to them and ask for prayer. They're the type of person, if I had a real issue in life, I believe that they would have answers. They're the type of person that I highly, highly respect. Does it happen? Does it happen in your life? It happened in the early church. We read from Justin Martyr, one of the early writers in the second century. So he's writing in the first hundred, hundred years. He's writing about the impact the Christians had through their business dealings, through their work. I quote, Many who have come in contact with us were overcome and changed from vile, tyrannical characters by having watched the consistency of their Christian neighbors or from having observed the wonderful patience Christian travelers had when they were all of a sudden overcharged or from simply doing business with honest Christians. He goes on to talk about how people would come and say, tell me more about your master. Would people come to you because of your work? Because of your attitude to say, I want to hear more about your Christ. I want to hear, what did you do Sunday? We went to worship Christ. Well, he's made a difference in your life. I can see that on Monday. I can see it on Tuesday. I can see it on Wednesday. To the point that all of a sudden, here's what's happening. You're honest. You're ethical. To the point that you're not harsh. You're not profane. You're gracious. You're respectful. To the point that you're getting your best efforts. They can see you're doing more than just getting by. They can see that you are one who, who is all of a sudden, you're carrying your fair share of the workload. You're not taking advantage of them. You're not one who lies, cheats, hides the, hides the, the you know, cutting corners. You're one who is really not, not guilty at work of being one of those who is slothful and surfing and not showing up. But rather they see that, hey, you're doing your very best. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does it, does it sometime cost? Here's what one author said. And he can say it better. In our society, we do not have slaves. But we can apply these principles to any kind of honest employment. A Christian worker ought to be the best worker on the job. He ought to obey orders and not argue. He ought to serve Christ and not the boss only. He ought to work whether anybody is watching or not. If he follows these principles, he will receive a reward from Christ, even if his earthly master or boss doesn't recognize. I have a friend who years ago was fired from his job for having worked too hard. He was earning money to go to college and he wanted to give the employer a good day's work every single day. The trouble was his zeal was showing up the laziness of some of the other employees and they started a fight. One of them falsely accused my friend of something and therefore he got fired. 
He lost his job, but he kept his character, and the Lord will reward him for it. In today's complex, competitive world, it is sometimes difficult for a Christian to obey God and hold his job or get a promotion. But he must obey God just the same and trust God for what he needs. Unsafe fellow employees may take advantage of the Christian worker, but perhaps this can be an opportunity for the Christian to witness and back up his witness with his life. It is far more important to win a lost soul than to make a few extra dishonest dollars. It's true. He's absolutely right. He's absolutely right that we should be different. We should be doing our very, very best. After I preached this in the first service, one of our individuals was sharing with me, one of those present. He said, you know, when I was going to college, I was going to a a school, a Christian school, and I needed a job, so I went to a local place of business. And he said, oh, you go to that school, that Christian college? I'll hire you. I have never once had an employee from that school who hasn't been dependable, reliable, and outstanding. Got his job. He said, a few years later, I was back in the area visiting my alma mater, and I stopped at the same gas station, and my boss that was then, who owned the station, he was there. I asked him, you know, how's it going? Yeah, talk about business. You're still hiring a lot of the kids from the college? He said, nope. Nope. He says, over the years, I saw what happened. They were unreliable, didn't show up. They weren't as honest as that first generation And I will not hire anybody from that school ever again. They called themselves Christian, but they were anything but. What kind of testimony are you leaving with your customers, with your coworkers, with your boss, with your employer? It makes a difference. It makes a difference. To them, to God and to your future when you stand before Christ.